Thursday, July 11th, 2019. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight I'll be joined by Frater DeMuzzi, and we will present a review and discussion of the recent Graham Hancock books, Magicians of the Gods, 2015, and America Before, 2019. These works are the latest in a series of speculative efforts to support the long-standing theory that our present civilization, especially Western civilization, was preceded by an advanced antediluvian culture that might have been Plato's Atlantis, the survivors of which, according to Graham Hancock, created the monolithic architecture of the late Neolithic and passed on their knowledge of mathematics and astronomy to the Sumerians, the Egyptians. And recent discoveries such as the 12,000-year-old temple complex of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey lend these ideas credibility, but they are still resisted uh, by the cultural Marxists who believe that civilization must evolve from the simple to the complex. Hence, Graham Hancock's books are controversial. So, put on your fedora, oil up your bullwhip, and join us for an hour of adventure. Actually, just just uh, hang on, Chris. We'll we'll uh, we'll we'll be with we'll be with you in a minute. Actually, there no were two. Yeah, just hang on, yeah, but Brad uh, Demuzzi, say hello, say hello, so everybody knows you're there. Hi. How are you guys are doing? You there? You're there. I okay, there. good. Just just stand stand by. Let me read the let me read this the the, the introduction to this. Actually, there were two major works that launched Graham Hancock on his career. The first was the book Hamlet's Mill by Giorgio di Santa Anna and Hertha von Decken, 1969, and then the Lucas Spielberg film Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981. Hamlet's Mill ambiguously suggested that the precession of the equinoxes and therefore the zodiac was known as far back as 22,000 years ago. This set off a flashbulb in the minds of those who still believed in Atlantis and launched a new era of celestial archaeology, both armchair and in the field. Stonehenge, Malta, and of course the pyramids of Egypt became hot topics for books and documentaries. The Indiana Jones films established a visual and dramatic template for the new intellectual adventurer. Unfortunately, anthropology and archaeology at the time were dominated by the cultural Marxists who held two dogmatic perspectives. Geologic, cosmic, uniformitarianism, which permitted no apocalyptic events such as asteroid strikes and uh, and cultural and cultural civilizations evolution from the simple to the complex. This was the influence of Darwin on Mars. Neither of these fanatical doctrines permitted any consideration that the biblical great flood might be anything more than a myth and that Plato's Atlantis was anything more than a fantasy. According to his arch critic, Jason Colavito, Hancock was also influenced by Ignatius Donnelly, that's Atlantis, 1882, and Ragnarok, 1887, as this quote from his review of Magicians of the Gods reveals. 
Part of the problem, of course, is that Hancock is wedded to his Donnelly-inspired lost civilization, and the long shadow of its Victorian origins casts a pall over the new work. Thus, we find Hancock repeating Donnelly's arguments, even when they are uncomfortably Victorian, and frankly, more than a little racist, imperialist, and colonialist. We learn in Magicians, for example, that the lost race where white men with that the lost race were white men with red beards who came from the Caucasus region and spread civilization to all the little brown peoples of the earth. We learn that all the non-white peoples of the earth mistook them for angels or gods, and that even the Jews thought of them as the watchers and the Nephilim. And by sheer coincidence, these masters of the universe, in addition to being white, also espoused values identical to those of modern Christians, with anything that's too regressive or uncouth, merely a remnant of indigenous superstition. If Cavalito uses this to brand Hancock as a racist, then conversely, he brands himself as a cultural Marxist. And much as I may agree with some of his criticism, my sympathies must remain with Hancock. And obviously, this is the hermetic hour, and Hancock is very hermetic. The recent discoveries of the meteor strike in, in Yucatan 65 million years ago, the discovery of the Godeki Tepe in Turkey and the Denisovian cave in Siberia, and the track of the Denisovian DNA, and other remarkable discoveries in our antediluvian prehistory are rewriting our knowledge of the distant past. And as for the red-headed Caucasians, I have personally looked upon the beautiful mummified lady from the Tarim Basin in Central Asia in her tartan kilt, and the star-lore of the north did not come down to Mesopotamia and ancient Greece from the Mongolians, because there were no Mongolians in those days. The great shamanic magic of the polar stars was Scythian, and their mummified bodies are still being found in Mongolia today. All around the world, the old myths are being confirmed. But let us continue with our examination of magicians of the gods. The book begins with... Gobeki Tepe and establishes its age of 12,000 years ago, putting it well beyond Katal Hayuk 9,000 years ago as the oldest architectural feature yet found. It was obviously not built by a farming culture, but the German archaeologist who dug the site is convinced that the people who built Gobeki Tepe also invented agriculture. Hancock later notes that Gobeki Tepe is is very near to Haran, the ancient city of the moon god, where the Hermetic Sabaeans preserved the star lore of Babylon for thousands of years, finally passing it on to the medieval troubadours. He also notes that Gobeki Tepe and Haran are near Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark is said to have made landfall. This is also near Cappadocia, where numerous underground cities are located, and no one can say how old they are. He moves on 
Across the globe to Indonesia where he visits Gunung Padang, an ancient temple complex alleged to be 25,000 years old. From Gunung Padang, Padang, he moves to America and outlines the new comet theory for the cataclysm that brought on the Great Flood and ended the Ice Age. This comet has replaced Planet X, the periodic nemesis that brings ruin to the planet every 5,000 years or so. Actually, the comet has a longer history as a theoretical villain than Planet X. Apparently, Ignatius Donnelly opted for the comet as the destroyer of Atlantis. Now it's back in fashion. We opted for Planet X in our film Beyond the Myria, 2007, and Hancock, like a hedge fund investor, devotes a chapter to Planet X, even though he prefers the comet theory. In either case, the scene in Beyond Lemuria, where the mammoths being frozen in their tracks by sudden icy blasts, will work with either scenario. Also, the wrenching of the Earth's crust with a pole shift could be caused by either phenomenon. Hancock agrees with us that it was fast, not gradual. We use this gravitational cataclysm to thrust the underground cities of the ancients into another dimension. But Hancock avoids this extreme. He credits the ancients with telekinetic abilities, which we'll discuss in due course. Hancock believes that the Mississippi Valley mound builders were a good deal older than mainstream archaeology supposes. But he stops short of calling them antediluvian. He sees them rather as influenced by the antediluvian. This is the pattern he suggests for all of these end of the Ice Age monuments. This idea was brought to the screen in the recent film 10,000 B.C., in which a Cro-Magnon mammoth hunter named Orion rescues his stolen mate from the evil Atlanteans who have enslaved the proto-Egyptians to build the Great Pyramid. Of course, Hancock sides with his collaborator, Robert Duval, in the belief that the pyramids were laid out as a projection of Orion's belt on the earth. Now, moving on to South America, Hancock discusses the recent discoveries of a number of ancient cities recently discovered along the Amazon. I'm disturbed by his failure to mention the failed efforts of his Victorian age predecessor, Barrett. Percy Fawcett, who searched for these lost cities in vain. Fawcett was a Victorian romantic like Hancock, and he at least deserved a line of credit. Hancock believes the Amazonians were gifted with a special method for enriching soil that enabled them to turn their jungle into a natural farmland supporting thousands of villages in large communities along the river. He also believes that they learned the complex formula for the psychedelic brew ayahuasca from ancient survivors of the Ice Age culture. Returning in the Mississippi Valley in the Comet Theory, he argues that destruction of the landscape and the ecology of Middle America was complete and total. No artifacts would remain after the final event. He surmises that the advanced ancients who were a maritime culture then dispersed by sea to the east and west 
to reestablish their ancient religion and spiritual technologies throughout the world. And he goes into this at much more length in, in, in the next book, America Before. Hancock devotes chapters to relating his cosmic events to biblical and other myths. He creates an ancient empire of cities and sacred mountains in the Middle East that seem to be the timing capsules of the antediluvian survivors' wisdom and talents. Mounts Ararat and Judy, where Noah landed, Gobekli Tepe, the oldest temple complex, Haran, the city of the moon god, Baalbek with its gigantic stone blocks, and Mount Hermon, where the fallen angels landed. This is the reborn empire of the ancient gods, reborn among the Neolithic hunter-gatherers after the great cataclysm. He goes on to relate this theme uh, this theme to the Phoenician legends and culture, citing ancient sources. Hancock makes numerous references to the ancient initiatic code of the Zodiac in which the Milky Way is referred to as the River of Souls. He calls upon Barossus, Sancho, Neato, the Edpu-building hieroglyphics, the Bible, and Hermes Trismegistus to arm the magicians of the gods with the mythic invocations to conjure up a lost world. I will give Graham Hancock five stars for this book and only one star to his critic, Jason Colavito, for his pernicious review. Okay, uh, Prior to Muzi, that's my review of Magicians and the Gods. Do you, do you want to comment on, on any of that? Um, pretty much uh, sort of in line you that you gave both of the books. I found uh, both of them uh, very highly interesting. Uh, I'm a little... Uh, some of his facts seem a little uh, dubious to me, but I think for the most part, I mean, he's done a better job than most other books of that genre that I've read by, you know, various different authors. Uh, I think uh, around like the prehistory of man and whatever and how it, uh, you know, relates to us, especially from a magical standpoint, I'm more in line and more in more agreement with uh, Gordon White's book, uh, Starships, which I know you've read. You've interviewed oh, yeah. uh, Gordon on your show about that book. I'm in agreement with a lot of his theory. I mean, the premise, you know, what he did with America before is basically, you know, he covered all of, like, you know, Europe and the Middle East and everything in his other books, and now he's finally bri- tackling the whole America situation, North America and South America and Central America, which... You know, I I found it completely entertaining and like fascinating, and there's certain bits of his theory that uh, resonate with me. And like, I was glad he's finally came out and said some of the things that he said in America before that he was kind of hinting at and alluding to in his uh, previous books, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods and Magicians of the Gods, and a little bit of uh, what he goes into in Supernatural. I don't know if you read that book, uh, you know, from front cover to back yet, but in all, it was a very, very good read, both of the books. Well, yeah, I have read Supernatural, and I and I have, have had it for quite some time, and I read Sign in the Seal. That was the one that he did right after he saw Indiana Jones and got started. You know, uh, when I said Ham, when I said Hamlet's Mill influenced him, Hamlet's Mill influenced everybody. Hamlet's Mill started off this whole business of, select, of, of celestial archaeology. And something I want to point out, 
uh, when I when I uh, accusing American archaeologists and and British archaeologists of being cultural Marxists, yes, most of them are, and I ran into that in graduate school in in anthropology, and I barely made it out by the skin of my teeth. In fact, in fact, I almost got thrown out of uh, out of archaeology class when I when I dared to mention the the uh, the Bimini Road at a, at a, in a symposium, uh, you know. You just don't it. it, it, it the, the as as Hancock pointed pointed out, Atlantis is the A word. It, it, if you if you if you even mention it, even even whisper Atlantis in in uh, in, in 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 American anthropology, you you can if you're a professor, you can lose your tenure just by by breathing the word, just whispering it. These people are are they they're they're so political that it, that. Uh, about archaeology, that Hancock is right. He says archaeology should not be a science, and and he's right about that. And and actually, in Europe, archaeology is not under the sciences. It's 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 under classical study. Uh, archaeologists are are literally they're they're under in in European universities they are under classical studies. That's why uh, Professor. Uh, uh, Santa Anna and, and Hertha van Decken could do Hamlet's Mill, and and Hamlet's Mill was what was what started this whole back in 1969. It's what started off all this inquiry about the possibility of of a, of, of, a, of a very very ancient advanced civilization, the one that Hancock and that and it wasn't just Hancock who started. People, lots of other people preceded Hancock. Uh, you know, writing these books, you know, the the, the serious mystery by Temple and and a number a number of people followed uh, uh, followed on uh, on Hamlet's Mill. And by the way, Hamlet's Mill is very much like uh, Hancock. It's ambiguous. They present the anomalies, but they fall short of explaining them. They let you kind of draw the conclusions that they want you to that they that they're trying to get across. In the books of Hancock that I read too, he kind of falls into that same trap as well too. Well, Would you yeah, not they, agree? They, they, like he's good at presenting one thing too. Like it's not just archaeology too. Like you have to really like get your like head into where the civilizations were like, you know, that society, their beliefs, what, you know what I mean? You really have to get in their head to kind of figure out the whole entire picture, right? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we, we get into in both books, because he repeats, I'm going to go ahead and read what I have on, on uh, America before. And I said, now let's move on to Hancock's current offering, America Before, key to, The Key to the Earth's Lost Civilization. This book, in many ways, is a rerun of earlier works, especially Magician of the Gods. And its primary purpose and theme is to consider North America as the original location of Atlantis. Now, this is an old idea, which Hancock thinks uh, the comet devastation theory has revived. And he begins with descriptions of the massive ice sheets that covered Alaska, Canada, and much of North America and the great down to the Great Lakes region. And he also notes evidence of massive destruction, which tends to confirm the comet theory. He again focuses on the mound builders of Mississippi, suggesting that their activities may date back to 13,000 years ago. He does not suggest that the serpent mound is antediluvian, but rather 
that it was engineered by the civilized survivors of the comet. And he suggests that after the cataclysm settled down, the surviving Atlanteans became the shamanic wise men of the hunter-gathering North American Indians, and they set sail for Europe and all points east and west to re-civilize the world. Now, this is a different version than the Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat scenario in the previous book. Hancock is letting us choose between Noah and, and America. Frankly, I prefer the previous version, and I think Gobeki Tepe, Baalbek, and the underground cities of Cappadocia and Haran are more convincing after effects of Atlantean engineering than the serpent mound in the Mississippi Valley. And Hancock could have offered his American addendum in a much shorter format than 600 pages. Now, he revisits the Amazon and suggests that their special fertilized soil was, in fact, an invention of these Atlantean survivors, enabling the Amazonian Indians to live in the Garden of Eden, where the jungle itself was their farmland. Nearly a million of these city-dwelling Indians are said to have died as the result of disease introduced by the Spanish. And this was within about 100 years. This is one thing I'm having difficulty swallowing, that a million people could die within about 100 years' time, and, and, and this whole huge complex of cities along the river could vanish and these people could all die within a couple hundred years. I'm having trouble with that. But I think that the soil, the whole mystery of the, the special soil is very, very interesting. And also he thinks that ayahuasca was another invention of these, you know, of these Atlanteans. That, uh, and, and he's got a good point there because ayahuasca would be a very, very difficult thing to, to stumble on just by trial and error. How do you know that one of these plants is going to help you release DMT in the stomach? Go ahead. No, I was saying poke with the whole ayahuasca thing, like I mean, I'm pretty sold on the whole animism theory, and, you know, I don't know exactly where you stand on that, but I think that they had help, or they were in communication with the Mother Ayahuasca, or whatever you want to call her, actually gave them the formula or the knowledge to make that whole brew. Where, where do you stand with that? Uh, it's kind of like Tamron's idea. You know, for in in the movie Avatar, like the whole like the whole planet in that case the moon Pandora is alive. Once you tune into the to the exactly. eco zone. Yeah, you're exactly. right, right. Once you once you become one with the eco zone then then you can uh, you can get the wisdom of the plants, the wisdom of the animals and everything. Yep. Yeah, that's very possible. The whole world is alive, but one of the things that I love about Hancock is that he is uh, died in the world hermetic uh, you know, hermetic philosopher and magician, because because so much of what he what he talks about is 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 like hermetic magic and alchemy and and and, and astrology and everything. He 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 is one of us, you know. And and but that does you know that does raise some questions. And the questions, of course, and, and I've already discussed this with you. He kind of sidesteps around the interdimensional theory, you know. As you remember, uh, Keel. Keel, the guy that wrote the um, the Mothman prophecy. Yeah, John Keel. Uh, yeah, yeah, yep. he, yeah. He was uh, John John Keel. He was saying, well, there there are people, and there's the UFO crowd, and then there's the uh, the ancient aliens crowd, and then there's the and then there's the uh, uh, the occult crowd, and then there's 
and then there's this, this so-called scientific crowd, and none of them can get together on anything. Hancock, you know, he's kind of he's kind of got his foot in three or four different camps. And one of the things that we've been uh, dealing with, and you and I have talked a lot about, and, and of course, one of the things we dealt with in our film Beyond Lemuria, which which deals with a lot of the a lot of what what uh, Hancock's talking about in these books, is the idea that the UFOs and a great deal of supernatural phenomenon come from another dimension, which exists coexists with us, a parallel world. Uh, or a number of parallel worlds which coexist with us, and and they're 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 close enough to where to where you could uh, if if you, if you had the right frequency you could reach out and touch people in these other dimensions and they could touch you and and this this is something that uh, that Hancock does not uh, does not deal with the, the other dimensional theory but but then with the UFOs he's he's open know, to it though. He's open, to, and in a little bit further into our discussion, I'd like to read a, about a page and a half of this book, too, where he comes out and finally says what, you know, I've been suspecting his mind has been for the last 10 or 15 years, but he actually kind of hints at it. He does not discount any kind of psi or traditional magical abilities with some of uh, intertwined with some of these civilizations. This may be a good segue to that, but we can get to that a little bit later. He does though. I think he's very open to that, you know, and you know where I like, I'm more, I come from more, the last 10 years, more from the Jacques Vallée, John Keel, Patrick Harper kind of camp with this whole phenomenon. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't think, yeah. like, you know, it's really little gray men from Alpha Centauri or anything like that. I think it's more like to what you were saying, kind of like kind of like the Shaver mystery, like more of an interdimensional thing. They're sharing the same space. And they're just vibrating at a higher frequency, or you know what I mean. Shaver, Shaver had the had the, the theory of the simultane. They're like pages in a book. Uh, if you were a bookworm, it'd be like going through a wormhole. You could go from page one to page four hundred just by by eating your way through the pages. That would be you know if you were a bookworm, and and that would be your wormhole. One of the things that Hancock is definitely saying, and one of the mysteries he's confronting, especially when he gets to the stones in Baalbek. Now, you get the pyramid in Egypt, those stones are big. Yeah, some of those foundation blocks in the, in the Great Pyramid are, you know, they're the size of uh, are the size of the room I'm sitting in, you know. And uh, they're, they're, they're 12, 12 feet square and, and way, way uh, you know, something like 40 tons. But the foundation blocks at Baalbek in Syria, which are part of that little empire I was talking about, this extends down from uh, Gobekli Tepe. Those foundation blocks are as big as railway cars, and they're made of their car. They're, they're carved out of solid stone. They're absolutely awesome. And 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 uh, you know, as um, as I I mentioned before, you know, there are certain things that you I have not seen. This, the, I haven't been to Baalbek. 
as I mentioned my experience looking at the beautiful the beautiful uh, lady of the Tarum Basin, and that was an experience. I've had I've had some of these experiences. I stood under Cotalique down in the in the in the, the museum in, in the uh in, in Mexico City, the anthropological museum. I stood under Cotalique and looked up and and it was the most evil thing I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and but conversely I, I, I saw the uh, I saw the, the the beautiful the beautiful Caucasian mummified lady uh, in her uh, redheaded lady in her in her in her Scottish kilt uh, that was t- that came from the Tarim Basin in Central Asia, and I I saw her in the in the Bowers Museum and and that and that was a, that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. The woman was absolutely beautiful, and she was thousands of years old. And so you know there are certain experiences, but standing on the stones at Baalbek, Hancock, you know, had the, had a similar experience. And, you know, you stand on one of those stones, and 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 you just you're just aware that how in the how in the name of heaven did they ever do this? How how did they? Oh do yeah, it? the and shock he, and awe factor. Think of the time period that all these monuments were constructed, and you know you're familiar with Christopher Dunn's work where he's basically saying, like, even for, like, in Egypt, pyramids and all that, they needed, like, almost advanced kind of machinery just to precise the placement of the blocks and how they carved it and all that. It makes you wonder. I never bought the theory of these thousands of guys laying out all these logs and rolling all these 40-plus ton stone blocks or miles from the quarry over to the site. It makes you think. You know what I mean? It makes you wonder that the, yeah, yeah, it does. the explanations that were fed in school and at university and all that, at the end of the day, they just don't make any sense. Like something's missing from that equation. Well, it's another experience that I had relating to this is all through Oceania, not just Micronesia and Polynesia, but all through Oceania, uh, you have you have uh, the the belief in mana and tapu mana and tapu and some of these islanders they're big people you know they're really big people and they have big mana and you know mana is is tremendous personal power and uh when i was out in ponape i went out and sat them you know i went, I went in the vault i went in into the in the, in the vault in monmado but I also did was I sat out in the middle of Don Duas in the middle of the fortress and I meditated and, and I, I kind of had the same experience of one of the old Chimeros that directed the construction of it. Now, according to them, according to what they will tell you, they quarried those big basalt pillars up at the north end of the, of the, of the island from the uh, Sokin's Rock. They quarried them. And then they flew them. I, they they say they flew them. Now, 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 I don't know. They, they probably rafted them, rafted a lot of them because there's a lot of them down there in the lagoon, you know, that obviously fell off a raft. But they will tell you that they flew them down from Sokins and that they stacked them by mental power. And, you know, you look at that, the way those... The way the, those walls are cribbed and non-modeled, you just sit there and look at them, and you could, and you can just see maybe one of the old uh, one of the old Chimeros just just building this thing with his imagination. 
it's the same yeah, for yeah. like like uh, Puma Punko, for instance, the precision and all the line, the angles of all the blocks that they used and like how they put them into yeah. place. And you know, like I, I don't buy all the that crap that they show on like that ancient aliens TV show. Like, oh, it was aliens. You know what I mean? But how do we know that these civilizations of old didn't possess some kind of geopolymer kind of technology or, you know what I mean? We like are, we are many different yeah. ways to skin that cat. You know I, what I mean? I, I agree. I agree with you. We are fixated with certain preconceived notions. And here I'm, you know, I'm criticizing the cultural Marxists for some of their pre, pre uh, some of their preconceived notions. But then we have preconceived notions too. Preconceived notions that you have to have industry in order to have technology. That may not be necessarily true. Yes, yeah, see, I, and, I don't know if I buy that. I buy that. Well, Go I'm on. saying that I, that's what I'm doing. I'm questioning it. I'm saying that is one of our preconceptions, and we're not Marxists. But the, the Marxists, they have to – everything has to be evolved from the simple to the complex with them. They – uh, yeah, you it's know, all matter, it's matter based. The Marxists, yeah, yeah, it's all totally, totally matter materialistic. Based. Matter comes yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, matter and materialism comes first. That has enabled them to, to kind of conquer science because uh, Descartes, uh, you know, the philosopher Descartes, uh, who was an occultist, by the way, and an alchemist, everything else, but he came up back in the Renaissance. He came up with that with that dictum that that if you can't touch it, feel it, measure it. And and uh, and weigh it. It doesn't exist. <laughs> and that, of course, has cursed our whole progress and human human progress ever since has been cursed by Descartes with that notion. Like the imagination has no power. And uh, I think that that, that I, I, and I'm kind of and I and I kind of in agreement with Hancock. I think that I think these people had. Did have they did have uh, tremendous uh, uh, kinetic ability. This is the perfect time. Let me read about three paragraphs from his book, and this is what I've like I told you before. I suspected, you know, where his head was at beforehand, but finally he's come out and said it. So let me read a uh, just okay. a little, brief little blurb from the book. Go okay. ahead. This is what he's saying. Saudi imagining a lost civilization that had developed machines powered by nuclear energy speaks of exploring the outer realm space and manipulating the global climate, but I beg to differ. I don't think nuclear power was involved, and I don't think machines were involved either. As I near the end of my life's work, end of this book, I suppose the time has come to say it in print. What I have already said many times in public Q&A sessions at my lectures, that in my view, the science of the lost civilization was primarily focused upon what we now call psi capacity that deployed the enhanced and focused power of human consciousness to channel energy and to manipulate matter. Although psi research is still undertaken in a small number of university institutes in Britain, the United States, and Russia, it is generally ridiculed and sidelined by modern mainstream scientists. This categorically does not mean that there's nothing to psi, but instead speaks volumes about the nature of science today. 
which is heavily dominated by materialist thinkers who reference frame has little room for spooky action at a distance. Remember Einstein, you know, saying uh, the phrase, which was Einstein, refers specifically to the paradoxes of quantum entanglement, but applies equally well to other alleged non-local phenomena such as telepathy, which is the communication from one person to another of thoughts, feelings, desires, etc., involving mechanisms that cannot be understood in terms of known scientific laws. Number two, Remote viewing, the practice of seeking impressions about a distant or unseen target, purportedly using extrasensory perception. Number three, telekinesis, the movement of a body caused by thought or willpower without the application of physical force. Number four, healing power, whereby patients successfully (laughs) cured of their ailments by non-physical and non-medical means. Now, what does that tell you? Well, that tells that tells me what what I personally agree with, and 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 I personally support. That's one of the reasons why I I really really am a, am a strong supporter of Graham Hancock and his work. And I thoroughly agree, you know, because my experiences uh, when I was in, in in graduate school in the nineteen in the late nineteen seventies, and and I got my master's in in nineteen eighty. In, in cultural anthropology, I ran into exactly what he's complaining about, you know, uh, and that this so-called science that is all materialistic to the point where where they don't the human spirit and and and, and, and the human imagination are not considered at all. Neither are possibility of of any kind of extraordinary powers. Also, you know, I want to point something else out that I have something that I have ignored. And and uh, Hancock doesn't mention it, and I've ignored it, uh, and I sh- well, we shouldn't. And that's Jane's uh, study on the bicameral mind. I frankly, I kind of got mad at, at Jane's the idea that uh, that back around sometime around 200 BC or something like that, he said there was a there was a shift in the in the, in human thinking where we lost where the gods no longer where the gods no longer talk to us. We could talk to them, and they wouldn't talk to us. And he, uh, well, that's he said the that, fall. Was the yeah, fall, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, I, I think I'm going to take another look at Jane's. In fact, you were over here when Sister Urania came out of her retreat, and, and we were talking about Jane's in the kitchen. I remember. Yeah. yeah. I am definitely going to take another look at Jane's. I thought, you know, I thought, well, I don't know. The gods are still talking to us today. What is Jane's talking about? But I think he's on to something. And I think that bicameral shift may very well have something to do with what Hancock's talking about. Maybe before that bicameral shift, then uh, maybe we were more able to do this sort of thing that he's. Yeah. And I'm in full agreement. Somehow along the line, the timeline, we lost the ability to do that. But I was fascinated by the fact that he finally stated, which that which he was alluding to in all of his previous books, he knows that there is something else. And I hate to use the term magical, but there was something magical behind some of this. I don't know if I agree with everything he says. He goes into talking about how all the old sites were aligned to various different supposedly significant asterisms, you know what I mean, and like, or it could be the Zodiac or whatever, because he never really goes into any detail why 
those civilizations actually saw the significance in those asterisms. But his work is like, look, because I know that we're running out of time. These books are fascinating. They definitely get your mind spinning. And from there, there's other authors that your listeners should check out, too, if they're interested, not just Graham uh, Hancock. Gordon White, they, Gordon Gordon White, White Starship. I highly, I highly and, recommend yeah, uh, that book. Andrew, Andrew Collins. Collins. Yeah, yeah, the Cygnus the the mystery. mystery. We did a show. Yeah, we did a show on that. And the Cygnus mystery I, I, is, is got a lot of good significant stuff in it. Temple's work yeah, on the, yeah, the, the serious, serious, serious mystery. mystery. And, and the thing that lends credence to his theory is the CIA was after for basically to get a hold of his work. So there has to be something there of, I don't want to say the truth, but a truth. Go Let me on, point go something out. Before we close, we just finished uh, – I was over, over in Lawrence. We were watching Joe Rogan had an interview with Graham Hancock, and he was reviewing, uh, Graham Hancock was reviewing from memory. The man has a fantastic memory, uh, reviewing America oh, yeah. before. You, you know, I saw it last month. Yeah, you know, I had the yeah, yeah, that, that I'd like to recommend. You know, yeah. I, I would like to recommend to our, uh, to our listeners, go on. Joe Rogan has this interview with Graham Hancock on America before, and it's very, very it's fascinating, and you can see Ed Hancock talking about everything we've been discussing tonight, and, and and he's doing a better job than we've been doing, obviously, because he's the author and he has a fantastic memory. Yeah. But one of the things, one of the things that Hancock said in that interview, and I want to repeat it, is that this comet that ended the ice age is periodic, and as I pointed out, it's like supplanted now. This theory has supplanted. The idea of Planet X, which we have in Beyond the Mirror movie. By the way, I recommend that film that anyone, anyone listening who hasn't seen it, Beyond the Mirror, second edition, go on Amazon and get it. It's only nine bucks and it's worth watching. And you can see the elephants getting frozen. And you can also see me me in the middle of Nanduas and if, if Nan Madol. You get some good footage of Nan Madol. Now, plug, plug, plug. <laughs> but what hand <laughs> Yeah, well, I got to get a little plug in here, you know. Yeah, I just sent three of them. I just sent three of them off to Amazon, so I know they got them. Anyway, what Hancock said in the in the Rogan interview before he before he signed off, he said, "I want to point out that this comet is periodic, and this whole belt, the Torin meteor belt swarm, we pass through it two times a year. We pass through it in June, and we pass through it in November." And, and oh, you're going—he's going in barrels there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We passed we pass through it two times a year, and he said, and and it's very dangerous. And uh, Hancock said that astronomers agree that this is the most threatening thing to planet Earth in the cosmos is this Torin meteor belt. That's the remains of the, of the comet. And he was suggesting, he said, rather than spend all this money on weapons that we spend, we should be developing spacecraft and weapons to handle the threat in that Torin meteor swarm to where we can nudge these things out of the way before they hit us. Periodically, we go through this thing, and uh, and sooner or later, if we don't clear it out or have, or have a means to protect ourselves, another one of them is going to hit us. And there's some of them, there's some of those chunks in that Torin meteor swarm, according to Hancock, that are big enough to wipe out the whole planet. 
So, El Supremo says we're going to go to Mars. Well, if we got the technology to go to Mars, then we should have the technology to knock those uh, meteors out of the out of the Torrin swarm. I would hope. Uh, I'm all for the new space force. The new Space Force should have a mission, and I think Hancock has set the mission for us. I think the warning should be very well taken, and as I said, I'm going to definitely, I'm sitting right here in, in, in Hawthorne, very close to, you know, this is Rocket City. Oh, yeah, SpaceX, Lauren lives around SpaceX and all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're right here in, in Rocket City, and Donald says he's, he wants a Space Force, so this should be the primary mission, and terraforming, going back to Mars, uh, you know, uh, I say going back to Mars because we've been there. Uh, we've obviously been there, you know, 50,000 50, to uh, 100,000 years ago we, we've been there. So let's go back to Mars. But it's more important, it's really more important to be able to handle this, the, the, these meteor swarms and, and be able to, that's more important than terraforming the old planet. I really think so. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on. And I want to encourage everybody to get the book, get the uh, book, America Before and, and Magicians of the Gods, but also get our Beyond Lemuria because you want to see the apocalypse and all. Of course, we, we were for Planet X, and uh, that's been supplanted by the comet, so you could use your imagination and just substitute the comet for Planet X, and it'll work fine. So uh, we'll see you next week for another Hermetic Adventure, and like I said, oil up your bull whips, and, and uh, Indiana Jones will ride again. And good evening, and Good magic. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.